Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people with dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Today's guest, Kevin Pollack, is a gifted actor, impersonator, and comedian whom you've seen on screen far more often than you probably even remember, although you'll surely recall his roles in such hits as A Few Good Men and The Usual Suspects. Pollock recently recurred as the dad in the CBS sitcom Mom and directed his first feature film, the documentary Misery Loves Comedy, which debuted this year at the Tribeca Film Festival, where I caught up with him and talked about his own journey. So let's get to it. Kevin, I'm glad that you didn't talk about yourself that much in the movie, because, <laughs> because that gives me time to pick pick your brain and see what kind of made you a comedian. Okay. Well, so what was the first, who was the first person, comedian or otherwise, who planted that seed in you that, that comedy could be a career? Um, I started collecting comedians on TV the way my friends collected baseball cards when I was about nine or ten years old, and then the comedy albums shortly thereafter. So the initial comedians were whoever was around at the time, you know. So it was Woody Allen and Jonathan Winters and, um, um, you know, whoever was around in the late 60s. And then it became George Carlin and Lenny, Lenny Bruce much later. I would catch up by going back. Um, Richard Pryor, Albert Brooks became a huge influence. So, you know, it developed with time as I developed. But even at an early age, you were thinking, oh, this is something that I, I could do, too. I didn't really think it was something to do. I just found it fascinating. I was gravitated towards just as an audience. And it wasn't until I was lip-syncing a particular album at home, and my mom caught me doing it and said, you are going to do that at the Zucker's at Passover, um, that I even, that was the first time it crossed my mind. And what bit was that that you were lip-syncing? It was the No in the Ark bit from oh, Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby, yeah, yeah. I, that was one of the first things I heard too. Yeah, and uh, a lot has changed since then. Well, as a serial rapist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so put it in context. Uh, he certainly wasn't in uh, 1967. No. And if he was, it wasn't known to anyone. What was the first bit of your own that that killed? <laughs> I'm so glad you changed the subject. The first bit of my own. Well, that. I mean, I'm a 10-year-old lip-syncing Bill Cosby's album, and it was a precocious little 10-year-old. So the material's hilarious, the timing's hilarious, and the fact that you're watching a little Jewish kid pretend it's him saying these things, um, there was no way for that to fail. I mean, it, it killed. What about the first thing you wrote? That so then by the time I was 16 or 17, I started speaking, having done that act all through junior high and high school. Uh, and then I started just doing impersonations, so I really wasn't speaking yet either. I didn't really find my own voice or point of view till I was well into a stand-up comedy career. I did a little interstitial between the impersonations, but there was no Kevin Pollack, really, until I was in my 30s and been, been a professional stand-up for over mm. a decade. What was the last job you had that wasn't comedy or acting? I was fascinated by that question. Um, have you yet to get an answer that was at all interesting? Uh, every 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 answer is I mean, interesting. I mean, a comedian will find that a, a way to make that funny, but I don't know that it ever feeds the rest of their lives. 
Well, I'm a newspaper reporter by trade, right. and people who are listening to this might not remember what newspapers were, but, yeah. but I would do comedy on the side, and I remember having a conversation with Joe Rogan 10 years ago, and he said that if I was serious about comedy, I would have to quit the newspaper job, and I never really did quit journalism. Mm. So I'm always fascinated by that last thing that somebody had, well, I mean, I and was, then they quit that, and they're like, no, I, was I, can, 20 be a, years I can be old. a comedian. Yeah, I was 20 years old, I was a waiter, it had nothing to do with... I mean, I guess I was honing my skills at the table when I would put the check down. But when you, but when you quit that waiting job, you had steady road work. No, I was uh, in San Francisco, and uh, you didn't have to go on the road. You could make a living doing the clubs in the Bay Area. Um, and I was so young, I didn't need much to get by. Uh, so. Yeah, it, it was just a matter of immersing myself into the world. How old were you when you had your first paid gig? Thirteen. Wow, what was that? Uh, I got paid, I think, five dollars from performing at an Elks Club, the lip-syncing bit. Mm. Yeah. And uh, what about the first time you went on the road with a headliner? Probably twenty-two. I don't. I, back then, you didn't go on the road with anyone. You just got booked and found out later who you were working with. Um, but being in San Francisco and rising up through that comedy scene, uh, a lot of big acts came through town and befriended me and made it easy once I moved to L.A. to get stage time like Leno and Seinfeld and Paul Reiser and Gary Shandling. And, um, so th th those are the stronger memories than The Road, per se. The, the Road was more about does it play in Peoria? And that was more about opening up your delivery and 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 uh, storytelling to make it more universal. Did you feel coming out of uh, San Francisco that that was more of an issue that people might have preconceived notion of? Oh, here's this guy from San Francisco. He's going to be some liberal. Uh, I don't. I mean, I wasn't billed as the comic from San Francisco. I don't know that people gave a shit necessarily if it wasn't in your introduction. Because you were an unknown, I was an unknown. So, however, you were introduced, and usually it was um, something, you know, generic, and uh, there was no preconceived notions. Do you have any kind of uh, before you get on stage, whether it was then or now? Do you have any kind of last pre-show rituals that you have before you go on stage? No. I know. I know you do. Ha you do have a, a hankering for opening lines, though. I heard, yeah. you, I heard you talk From about Mark that. From Mark Mara? Yeah, yeah. What? <laughs> no, I, I, I mentioned it. Yeah, I'll say to a seated audience, please please be seated. Has that always been your favorite? Or? No, just recently. And it's just a great icebreaker because it's silly and, you know, just kind of relaxes everyone's sphincter. That's the whole idea. <laughs> the first couple seconds to get that over with. Being, being a guy who's, who came up being known for doing voices... Who was the first person that you got to do the voice for? Hmm. Maybe when I did Peter Falk on The Tonight Show for Johnny Carson, sitting next to him on the couch, uh, and he flipped out. And then six months later or so, being accosted by Peter Falk in the produce section in the grocery store in Los Angeles. And he said, crossing just one eye, because he had a glass eye, and I had trained myself to move just one eye while speaking, and, and Peter said, how do you do that with your eye? Me, I understand, but how do you do that? And uh, that's when it became 
spectacular instead of just a parlor trick. So he had no idea that you had this I don't think he innate knew, skill I don't think to have who I was well. before he saw me on The Tonight Show. No, he was commenting that he had seen me on The Tonight Show and he, he was aghast <laughs> that I was not only doing the impersonation but was moving one eye. <laughs> he, he was fascinated by how he was able, you know, he was open, very open about having a glass eye since the age of three and I remember watching him in, on Columbo on TV and being in, you know, late teens and, and reading in TV Guide an interview he gave where he told two stories about life with a glass eye. One of which what I remember was him being in Little League, slid in the second base, he was called out by the ump, took out his eye, handed it to the ump and said, you clearly need this more than I do. Well, here was a guy being very open and honest about having a glass eye. Well, good for him. But it paved the way for me to train myself to move just one eye without mocking a disability. And he was fascinated by that. Yeah, your 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 pedophile has always been underrated because most people just go straight to the Shatner. <laughs> well, but the Falk is. I mean, it's. I'm not gonna truly, argue. What's the what? I'm not gonna argue like this. What's the what's the, what's the first thing? What's the first thing you you look for in deciding? Oh, this is somebody who I want to. I'll be make honest with you. It, if I am considered a a believable actor. It is because of my fascination to do an impersonation well that I studied mannerisms and gestures and full body nuance, the way people stood and walked and moved. Uh, a few years ago I was asked to perform at the 120th anniversary of Carnegie Hall by Steve Martin. His friend James Taylor was hosting and they asked me to do a tribute to Lenny Bruce. And I'd never done an impersonation of Lenny Bruce, but he had a very famous midnight show there uh, in 63 and became an album. And so they wanted to pay tribute to him. And so they asked me to do this. Well, I had to go and find footage of him doing stand-up, which is very rare footage because all the footage of him was after he had become famous and had become um, incarcerated. And there was only two performances on TV where he was just a straight stand-up. Um, and so that's where I would learn the gestures and the, and the hand and arm movement and the way his head kind of fell to the side when he talked. Um, so to me, doing the impersonations was always about building a, a character without even knowing it, you know. And I think it was because of the lip-syncing days where I didn't have the visual, I just had the sound. And I could hear him clear his throat, and I could hear certain sounds that created a physical uh, picture that I wanted to recreate. Had you, did you even bother watching the Dustin Hoffman movie? Lenny? I had seen it. I'd seen it a few times before I was asked if that's what you mean. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and I and I didn't want to do an impersonation of Dustin Hoffman doing an impersonation of Lenny Bruce. <laughs> that didn't make any sense. When I could just do the guy, the source. Yeah. Uh, being on being on lineups like the one you, you described at Carnegie Hall, when you're on a bill with multiple acts, who's the last person or last comedian act that you would want to ever follow? Where you, you see their name right in front of you on the lineup, and you're like, oh no, please. Oh, I have Can friends we... like that. Dana Carvey um, has been a lifelong, well, comedic lifelong. Uh, we started out in San Francisco together in the late 70s at the same time. And I never followed Dana under any circumstances. That would be uh, a horrible idea. So, yeah, there's always going to be action I want to go on after. Did you ever do the San Francisco competition? I came in second in 1982. 
what what is what kind of advice would you give comedians now about doing any sort of a contest whether it's San Francisco or Last Comic Standing doing a competition where you're being judged well just know what you're setting yourself up for that it is a competition and you'll be judged on a criteria that's wholly different than the rest of your career and um, you should really take it a lot less seriously than everyone else and um, realize that it'll be a part of your experience trajectory and not the thing that makes you or defines you. What's the what's the last uh, great advice you got from another comedian? Uh, very early on in my career, someone did one of my routines, one of my bits, on television, and I mentioned it to my friend uh, and and Sooth Sayer. Uh, Jay Leno in the mid 80s and uh, his response and I was you know I was concerned that since my routine was done by somebody else on television if I kept it in my act someone would think I was stealing from that famous person right and so Jay said oh yeah you want to know what you should do uh, uh, well you should probably uh, write a new joke and, you know, he wasn't being unempathetic, which is how it sounds and felt. He was saying, yeah, no, you're right. You shouldn't. You can't do it anymore. And so just write another joke, which also just fed into just keep writing and also fed into put in your 10,000 hours and quit complaining about anything and just get better at all this. The joke, by the way, I'm still fond of. Um, my uncle was a faith healer. But, of course, because he was a Jewish faith healer, he did things a little differently. Um, he would compare his illnesses to yours as a way to make you feel better. So he would say, oh, you sprained your ankle, did you? All right, well, I have a growth on my colon the size of your face. How do you feel now, Mr. Ankle? <laughs> there you go. What's the, what's the, what's the last uh, joke, bit, impersonation that you'll ever be willing to retire from your act. The one that's always going to have to be in there. Well, Christopher Walken now feels like the, the evergreen for me. Not just because if you Google Christopher Walken impersonation, sometimes over 600,000 search answers come up, and I'm number one. That's the queerest brag you will ever hear, <laughs> and that is the politically correct use of the term. Well, we're just going to have to keep that in the act then so you can stay number one in Google. I couldn't disagree anymore with you, my friend, but I will say this. Good day, sir. And good day to you, sir. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean L. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.